This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Shot of the dead. Why am I? Why am I dead? I don't know. It's a thing. It's Halloween. Yeah. What's your new Twitter um, profile? I guess it is Halloween, isn't it? Well, not really, but it will be. Er, it's Halloween season. When is this episode going to come out? Not on Halloween. No, like three weeks from now. Three weeks from now. Cool. <laughs> I love how we can be so timely. <laughs> but it's fine because that means someday we'll be sick or something and we'll just be like, whatever. We already have an episode. Also, RubyConf that week. And I'm going to Disney the week before that. So, hey, it's pretty good. Great. Bam. <laughs> so, Maybe I'll be out. will be out on, th- on Halloween. <laughs> Is that how time works? Yeah. <laughs> it goes in reverse like that. Yeah. If you don't record podcast, time starts moving backwards. Got to keep recording. (laughs) Little do the listening public know that this podcast is, in fact, responsible for keeping the space-time continuum intact. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think it, you know? You'd think it'd be a much more important podcast, but nope, it's this one. Yeah. Have you renamed any gems lately? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I don't want to invoke the wrath of the internet. <laughs> I don't really want to make this a topic, but I wanted to say a couple of things. Um, okay. I didn't have anything. <laughs> let's make it a topic. Um, I didn't have anything to do with renaming the gem, but I was in support of it. Like, I think we'd, we've been, it's actually been something we've been discussing for like, I don't know. We've been seriously discussing for like a year and a half or maybe even two years or something like that. And so work was done mostly by Avi and Josh and they did some testing and it turned out that they, they missed some test cases. <laughs> so when the release went out, there was a unfortunate bug in the deprecation messages that they were supposed to be getting and that it actually broke some test suites. So that was unfortunate, but I feel like, you know, we've kind of earned the right to have a couple screw ups. Uh, sure. You know, if you I been... mean, <laughs> y'all, you made a mistake. You immediately yanked the broken version that by itself is not a reason for anybody to get upset. Right. But people did harp on that. And I, and the people harping on that, I think if they looked deep within themselves would realize why they were harping on it it was because they didn't either agree with the name change or thought it was a thought it was an unnecessary change kind of thing which i don't know whatever but like a lot of the fallout that i've seen that has been frustrating to me has been a lot of people thinking that this is somehow a democracy right right and that we should all vote and the community should be consulted and ironically enough the folks who complain about this the loudest are folks who as far as i can tell have no community involvement or very right. little community involvement themselves. And again, I think I don't, I don't want your feedback on this. If you have feedback, do not send it to me. <laughs> but <laughs> but I just, I'd ask them if you're so fired up about the name change. And if you don't know by now, the name change we're talking about is factory girl had its name changed to factory bot. And there's a blog post we can link to, which explains why, if you're interested in the actual reasons why uh, that change was made. And if you find yourself really upset to the point of like, writing paragraphs about this then i just want you to stop for a second and really consider why why it is that this upsets you so much and then secondarily why anybody else should care that you're that upset about it (laughs) right (laughs) and by anybody else i mean particularly the people who actually are doing the work 
Yeah. That's yeah. it. And I know that times I complain about, like, you know, a couple episodes ago we were talking about Bundler and how, like, some of the things it did was a pain in the butt, right? Yeah. But the degree of the feedback here <laughs> has been, uh, outweighs the arguments over what the merits of a technical change are, kind of. Anyway, that's what I had to say about that. And, uh, long live factory bot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about the visitor pattern? Yeah. Um, I guess it starts with the visitor pattern and gets into like issues I have with Ruby in general. All right. So let's let's set the stage here before we before we get in, because there's some people there that are like, OK, visitor pattern. I've heard of that or visitor pattern. I have not heard of that, but I'm not quite right. sure what that is. So let me give you what I think my understanding of the visitor pattern is, because I am somebody who like I have a vague recollection of what that might be. So basically you would have a structure like a tree or something like that that you might want to do arbitrary operations on. And at that point, your choices would be to implement those operations on each class of thing that might be in that tree. So every class of thing could implement a thing that says like, I don't know, uh, process or I don't know, something more specific than process, whatever. And if you wanted to do something else to each one of those things that are in the tree, you would have to implement that method on each, each one of those classes. So the visitor pattern is essentially uh, what you would, I guess, at a high level, what you could possibly do is implement like a visit thing and visit takes a visitor and then calls the visitor with self as the argument kind of thing. Like uh, like visit, process this node, process myself, right? With this visitor. Is that a fair summation of what you think? Yeah. Whether okay. or not you ever pass the visitor to the object being visited Okay. is irrelevant i think but yeah it's specifically when the behavior is separated from the objects which it's acting on yeah that's a that's a, a concise way of putting that yes okay in fact the gang of four defines a visitor as represent an operation to be performed on elements of an object structure a visitor lets you define a new operation without changing the classes of the elements on which it would operate yes that's also a concise way of explaining it <laughs> ultimately if you have a set of objects with a diverse number of things that you want to do to them. This happens in game design. It happens when you're dealing with ASTs. But when you have like a large number of objects which you want to perform similar operations on. And by number of objects, you mean types of objects, right? If, right. It, was, if it was just right. one class of object, you'd just implement the method and be done with it. Probably. Yeah. probably. Probably. But so the idea is, do you optimize for being able to add new data types? Or do you optimize for being able to add new functions? or new operations, because those two things are fundamentally at odds with each other. So the visitor pattern really optimizes for, arguably you, you could say that it optimizes for adding new data types to a certain extent, but really it's a pattern that optimizes for being able to add new functions, new functions that operate over the same set of data. And really the only way with the visitor pattern that you could ever add new uh, types to, to existing functions is if every existing function just has a generic visit object method. Mm-hmm. At which point you're not really adding new data, new data types. You're more ignoring new data types. So one one example of the visitor pattern that people might be familiar with, and if they're not familiar with it, they almost certainly use it, is ARL. So ARL has its AST, and it uses the visitor pattern to traverse the AST. And specifically, the reason it uses the visitor pattern is to um, the visitor uh, differentiates between which SQL backend we are compiling the SQL for. So there's a PostgreSQL visitor, a MySQL visitor, an Oracle visitor, et cetera, et cetera. And then ARL has an additional element called the collector, which basically describes like what we're doing to the AST if we're doing something other than, like the visitor describes what backend we're operating on and the collector 
describes what operation we're performing, whether we are generating the SQL, whether we're collecting the values for all the bind parameters, whether we are partially compiling it because we're going to store it in, in the adequate record cache. Uh, that sort of thing gets handled by the collector, um, but that's not necessarily typically part of the visitor pattern. And I've been just thinking a lot about this recently because we, we talked about this, I think, right after I did it, but there was a big change that I did to diesel a while back where basically I moved to something that was a little bit closer to uh, the visitor pattern, but was more heavily optimized towards adding new data structures as opposed to uh, adding new operations. And in fact, it's impossible to add new operations, at least from outside of diesel, because we have an enum, a closed set of known types, which represent each operation that we want to do to the AST. Uh, and then the AST knows how to traverse itself rather than having a visitor that knows how to traverse it. Mm-hmm. But the AST pass structure that we pass in will vary its behavior based based on the back end. And basically it has to call all of the methods that represent what it wants to do for all of the passes all of the time in, in a single walk AST method. So some of these are very, very specifically tied to one pass. So for example, there's, there's a method you can call in the AST pass called unsafe to cache prepared, which just says, hey, this thing is not safe to store in the prepared statement cache. And there's exactly one AST pass for which that method does anything, and that's the method, that's the AST pass where we determine if this given AST is going to be safe to store in the prepared statement cache. But then there are some methods that you'll call that will do uh, different things depending on which AST pass is passed in. So for example, there's a method called push bind param, which takes the uh, value of the bind parameter. And uh, in the two SQL AST pass, that's just going to push the SQL for a new bind parameter onto the query being constructed. And then for the collect binds AST pass, it's going to actually perform all the serialization, turn that into the raw bytes that are going to get sent over the wire to the database and then store those somewhere else. Okay. So specifically, I've just been thinking a lot about the visitor pattern in Ruby and specifically for its use with ARL. Because for a long time, I've just kind of wanted to put a two SQL method on objects and just monkey patch everything and ha- and have it called, and you call 2SQL on it and have that be specifically how bind parameters get dealt with. Uh, and basically having whatever object, like it's easy to add new objects, you just have to define this method on it that defines how it converts to some other existing primitive that ARL or Active Record or what have you will know how to deal with. Uh, and it's basically impossible to add new structures to ARL or to Active Record to a certain extent without us having to do weird interactions with other parts of the system specifically to say like, hey, you can add new stuff here. So an example of where we do that is ARL knows more about how Active Record does typecasting than it ought to. And the reason for that is because that is a thing that you're gonna wanna add is new types that get serialized in the place of bind parameters. And we need to make it possible for people to do that. But we can't just then go in and, and say, well, we're going to have this method that's going to that that's gonna be the defined way to do this conversion. Number one, because it might vary based on back end. It shouldn't, but it might. Uh, and number two, when you add a method to an object in Ruby, you're kind of operating on this global namespace. And two SQL, I mean, we could, you know, we could have it be like two ARL bind param serialization or something very specific and pretend like we're writing C. But I don't really like that. And when you tie your behavior to your data in Ruby, you are ultimately polluting this global namespace. And you end up with these objects that get very large and have way too many methods on them and care about way too many things. There's not a ton of great ways to separate those out. But I think that I've been just thinking a lot about ARL recently because I'm, I, I, I really do think that the visitor pattern for an, a SQL AST specifically is just a really, really bad fit. 
because you almost never are going to add new operations that you're doing over your AST. Like the set of things you need to do to convert this AST into SQL and send that to the database is a very fixed, finite number of operations. You know, we're not talking about an AST for a programming language that we're going to be doing optimization passes on. Mm-hmm. But it is incredibly likely that people are going to want to add new AST nodes at some point because we don't know about everything that will ever exist on every SQL backend or even all the things that currently exist. There are extensions that, that get written all the time. You could write your own extension and maybe it could be a closed source extension, but you want to have uh, AST nodes to represent whatever fundamental parts of that extension are. So can you give an example of like what, like what are some recent AST nodes that were added? Just so people can understand, like what kind of functionality gets added to Active Record by adding AST nodes? I mean, I think the last time we added a new AST node, it wasn't so much adding a new one as much as significantly changing how existing ones work. But the last time I really messed around with the AST in a significant way in ARL was when uh, I was redoing how bind parameters get handled. Um, it used to be that. ARL uh, had its AST store this thing that says, I'm a bind parameter, and that was all it knew about itself. And so the visitor was then only responsible for traversing this AST, and when it found the thing that said, I'm a bind parameter, it's okay, I'm going to put the SQL for a bind parameter uh, onto the query now, and that's the end of that. And then anything that was wor- that was working with ARL and wanted to have values for those, needed to keep a separate array which contained all the values, and then those values would get compiled down separately. Uh, or not really compiled, but serialized separately. And a couple months ago, I changed that so that now the values are actually stored on the AST directly. Uh, made doing any sort of AST manipulation very difficult because you had to keep this other array in order. And if you wanted to do any manipulations to this AST, even if it was just adding or removing a node to anywhere other than the beginning or end of the of the tree, you now had to traverse this entire AST just to figure out where this new bind param needs to get stuck in your existing array and know how many how many bind parameters would appear before it and how many would appear after it. And that's you know a very slow operation to do, so we don't we don't do that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so now the values are stored on the AST nodes directly. So now when the visitor sees a, a, a bind param node, it needs to both push the SQL for bind parameter onto onto the query being constructed and also stick the value into this other array that's going to get returned at the end. Okay. So as an example of a, a place where where ARL does something very different from what Diesel does, for example, uh, let's say you wanted to add the um, array contains operator to your AST, which is, I think, at greater than. Yep. So in Diesel, that's going to be a unique type that represents this is an array contains operation, number one, because we want to, at compile time, reason about that. And number two, because we're gonna we're gonna use that type to uniquely identify the query to skip the query builder after it's run more than once. Right. So in Diesel, you'd be able to say at compile time, you'd be able to say like, I see you're using an array contains operator, but the thing you're use, you're calling it with is not an array, or is an array right. of a different type than you are looking for containment in, or something like that. Right. Or you tried to use this in a query that isn't on Postgres. <laughs> right. Or that you're not you're that you're not running on Postgres. Yeah, so we make stuff like that fail to compile. And so we have a macro that you call dieseling fix operator where you just say contains, you give it the actual SQL as a string, and then you can give it some documentation and additional boundaries. And in ARail, the way you would do that is we have a single node called infix operator, which just takes the SQL as a string. Uh, and that's kind of fine because it doesn't really need to know about uh, what to do with anything on either side of it other than visit the thing on the left side and then visit the thing on the right side. So because ARL has a decent number of more generic nodes that can represent the majority of the, of the kinds of nodes that you would want to introduce, 
Uh, it's less necessary to add new AST nodes to ARL than it would be to something like diesel. That said, there are places where, for example, upsert is something that you can't really represent generically. I don't think ARL has anything that can work like upsert right now. And that's something that works very differently on every backend and sort of needs to fundamentally change the AST. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I don't think we have any support for upsert in ARL. I I don't know off the top of my head, and I'm not, honestly I'm not even sure where I'm I would go look for that. But um, that's an example of something that would require additional AST nodes, or probably changing some other part of the structure to make room for it as well. If we were to ever support upsert, but specifically, it's not something that a library would be able to add, at least not without monkey patching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you're now monkey patching the visitor to add your new AST node you're basically in the same place that you were without the visitor pattern. Right. So it's interesting to me, though, I made this change to diesel a while back, and I specifically knew I was optimizing for adding new AST nodes at the expense of making it basically impossible to add new operations over the AST. Specifically, it is 100% impossible to add them from outside of diesel, and even inside of diesel, it can be very difficult to add them Unless there's some circumstances which were met by the time I've added a new AST pass since I made that change. So I added uh, a new AST pass recently to diesel called uh, debug binds. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically what this one does is it traverses the AST, collects all of the bind parameters, and basically calls the Rust equivalent of inspect from Ruby on them, and then sticks all that in an array. So basically, you know how when, when active record logs a query... You know, it says what the query is, and then at the end of that, it says, and here are all the bind parameters. Mm-hmm. I basically wanted to do the exact same thing for diesel. Because mm-hmm. uh, before, it was just showing the query and wasn't showing any of the values. So a while back, I added a constraint to diesel, like kind of prematurely, uh, which basically said that debug was a super trait of 2SQL. So basically, all that means if you implement 2SQL, you also have to implement debug. And debug is the trait that basically is the same as inspect in Ruby. Yep. So I need to add a new AST pass that walked uh, that traversed the AST, grabbed all the bind parameters, but then rather than serializing them for transmission of the database, like collect binds pass does, instead this one calls debug on each of them and puts those into into a structure that then will get formatted right. uh, later on. Makes sense. So this was a very, very easy AST pass to add because this pass had a, a very nice uh, coincidence of everything that I needed to do for that pass was already described with the verbs I use for all of the other passes. So the trait that handles like traversing this AST is called query fragment. And query fragment's generic over the database backend and has a single method that you have to implement called uh, walk AST. Mm-hmm. So AST pass, you there's no way for you in query fragment to ask like which AST pass are we in. There's a set of methods that you can call on it. Those methods will do something if it's a pass for which they have behavior, and there'll be a no-op if it's a pass that doesn't need those. Um, but So that's that's a closed set of verbs. And uh, it was very easy to add a new AST pass because that AST pass could be described purely with the existing verbs. I can't think of, at least for diesel, any future AST pass I might want to add that would need additional verbs beyond what we already have. But if I did need to add an, a new AST pass that needed a new verb, it would be very difficult because I would have to go find every existing implementation that would need to call this new method, whatever it would be, and add that to every existing implementation. And I would probably be very nervous about doing that because um, there would be no way for me to uh, enforce, just due, due to the way I've structured this, there would be no way for me to 
make it so that it fails to compile if I haven't examined an existing implementation to see if it needs to be modified or not. Mm-hmm. But so that, so that was the you know the trade-off that we made in Diesel is we have the set of verbs we can't add new verbs but we can add as many new nouns as we want and that's because specifically with Diesel right because of how we have our, our AST structured it's much 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 more likely that you'll want to add new AST nodes and I want those to be added by third-party crates. I'm trying to support all of the core SQL language including like backend specific things across all backends at least as much as I can, but then anything that comes from a, from an extension, I don't want in Diesel itself. I want that provided by by third-party plugins. So they need to be able to add these new AST nodes. Okay. Anyway, it's just been, I, I don't know that I have like necessarily a, a big like aha conclusion to all of this, more just that I've been thinking about this a lot and the trade-offs that ARL makes versus the trade-offs that Diesel makes and the pains of debugging things in ARL for uh, number one. Because like the visitor pattern also, at least in, in Ruby, isn't just as simple as you define this method and you have it with this type and this type and, uh, and this type. You sort of have to manually re-implement method dispatch. Yeah. Because you call visit and then you have to, you know, so you, you then grab the class name, convert any double colons to underscores and see if your visitor responds to that method. Right. If not, you need to go look at that thing super class and do the same thing and continue until you either reach basic object or uh, you found an implementation. And of course, that's very slow. So then you want it. So then you basically start defining uh, caches of for any given class, what the actual implemented uh, visit method name is, mm-hmm. which, of course, will break then if any if anybody monkey patches a visitor after the fact. It's just all it's all very complicated, much slower than it ought to be and a pain to debug. Mm hmm. Especially if it's something like, oh, I got, I had a minor typo in in this method name, or I tried to add a new visit for like two super classes up from this object, and I can't figure out why it's not using it. It's because somebody else added a visit method for one super class down. And it just the more I think about, it, the more I've been thinking like the visitor pattern is really, really poorly suited for specifically a SQL AST. <laughs> There's actually a good a good blog post that I found from Niraj Singh, who wrote on the Big Binary blog about the visitor pattern and double dispatch in Ruby. So we can link to that in the show notes. So if you're not quite sure what we were talking about there with uh, single dispatch and double dispatch and encoding the name of the class that you're visiting, that kind of thing. So that has some of that in there and does call out to like highlighting that ARel has this and things like that. So you were saying that what you kind of want to do in ARel is to basically... <laughs> monkey patch everything to support a two sql at least for bind parameter serialization at least i used to want to do that i don't know that i want to do that anymore but so that would be like to bind sql or something (laughs) yeah or actually really yeah to a real ast would be a method that i would love to have (laughs) and you would monkey patch object with that yep okay (laughs) (laughs) so this is exactly why right the alternative is really really crappy (laughs) right this is where it's like, and, th- and then this just makes me want features that Ruby doesn't have because I really want a, a way to do something similar to the visitor pattern, but basically have the implementation separated from the objects themselves, yeah. but in such a way that it is still directly tied to those objects and not tied to some, because c- what the visitor pattern is doing is, yeah, your implementation is not tied to those objects, but it is tied to just some other object, which a, th- a third party extension has just as little access to. Right. So like, let's, let's, Keep going with this two bind parameters example, or two SQL for bind parameters. Two a, yeah, two ARLAST. Two ARLAST, something, like something like that. If you were dealing with a constrained set of objects that would ever be in this AST or ever be bind parameters or whatever, 
Mm-hmm. Like if you were only dealing with business logic, right? Right. Then you could say like all of these have to implement this method, kind of like what you would do with the attributes API, right? Like you have to conform to this interface and then you'll be yeah. fine. But when you don't control something like, well, they could just pass me a date time. Right. Like I don't control the definition of the date time class. So now I've got to monkey patch this thing. Right. Or um, or if you just want date time to be part of your closed set. Right. So that's the difficulty there. And that's why you end up having to do something like, I don't know, we'll just monkey patch object. <laughs> right. And then we'll also specifically monkey patch date time because it's going to do something different and we'll monkey patch these other things. String and. Yep. Yeah. So that sounds like a whole lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah. So that's And so like, do you think it's do you think it's a bad fit for something like a SQL query builder because you are building things out of classes that are so diverse and you don't can the user doesn't control that kind of thing? Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. And because other people will want to have their own classes that you also don't control and have them inter- interact with this system. I guess the thing I've I've leaned on the most for these sort of cases in Ruby is some sort of registry mm-hmm. where you know, like, for example, attribute decorators, uh, which is a private a- API that we have in Active Record, but it's a step below the attributes API where the attributes API takes a name and a type and then a few options, and the decorator takes a name. And the name's only there because uh, this is the name of your decorator, not like a, a name of an attribute. And that's only there because this method needs to be idempotent because it's a class macro. And then it takes a lambda that will take the name of the attribute and the original type of that attribute and returns whether or not this is an attribute that should be decorated. Mm-hmm. And then a block that takes the original type and returns whatever the new type you want to have. Right. Uh, and so this gets used for things like time zone aware attributes, where the way that matter gets defined in um, Active Record is basically if there's a setting that you can have, which is these are the types that are time zone aware. By default, I believe it's timestamp and time, but not date. And then there's also a skip time zone aware attributes class level method, which you're saying like, even though this single attribute is of that type, I don't want this one to be time zone aware. So the matcher is basically like, is the original type in this array of what we want to decorate and is the name of it not in this other array? Or like serialize the the class macro that's more or less been replaced by the attributes API. Also uses the uh, attribute type decorators API and its matcher is just, is the is the name of the attribute this exact string? Right. So that's kind of what I was, maybe it's similar to what I was thinking is like one thing you could do is say like, if you want to add different types to this, then you have to implement two AST node or whatever, uh, or two two A-roll AST node or whatever. And then if you were past something that didn't, then you would fall back to this like, (laughs) I have a subset of things that I know how to support, like strings and date times and things like that. And I will, I will wrap them in this type that knows how to do it or something. Yeah. No, and that's definitely an option. It just, I prefer to have something uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely, yeah. You know, and also the the two ARL AST type thing. Well, this also gets into like issues I have with using the visitor pattern for SQL stuff is that you actually sometimes do want to build a meaningfully different SQL AST depending on which backend you're going to execute against. Right. Depending on how you structure the AST. So just a, a, an arbitrary example that is actually quite easy to handle in any case, but is just a good example of like, depending on how you structured your AST, it might be a little bit more complicated. Oracle has offset and limit in the reverse order of everything else. Hmm. So in Postgres, it's limit X offset Y. Mm-hmm. And in Oracle, I don't remember the syntax for offset, but I think it's like offset something or other X, fetch first Y rows only, something like that. But the important thing is that it's in the reverse order. 
Does order matter in Postgres? Could I pass yeah. the limit first and then the offset? Yeah, the clauses have to come in a very specific order. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, if you think about that. Okay. Hmm. So, I mean, of course, it's very easy to handle if just you have, you know, select statement and select statement has limit and offset on it. And then your visitor for everything else goes, you know, push the equal limit, grab the limit, push the equal offset, grab the offset. And then the Oracle visitor does the reverse of that. But if you had limit and offset as just separate AST nodes, like wrapping the entire thing, like, and now this has a limit and now this has an offset and you were just relying on those always get applied in the right order. Right now, if you have a pagination type thing, this thing's now going to need to know about which backend you're eventually going to want to execute against so that can build uh, one AST or another to be correct for that backend. Of course, that syntax tree is no longer abstract, and that's a terrible way to do this, but just as a contrived example, because I can't think of a better example off the top of my head. <laughs> um, Upsert's probably a better one, which is actually why I think ARL doesn't support Upsert. And uh, Diesel has two different uh, ways of representing Upsert in our AST, one of which is valid on MySQL and SQLite, and one of which is valid for Postgres. And we just assume that you know which, because they have very different semantics. SQLite only has, basically, if there's a conflict, replace the conflicting rows. Mm -hmm. MySQL has something that is both like Postgres's upsert and something that is like SQLite's upsert, but we only support the SQLite version because on key conflict update, I think is the syntax in MySQL. I don't remember what it is, but the mm -hmm. more long form do this very specific thing when there's a conflict is not safe in MySQL, so we don't support it. So we have the replace version for, for MySQL and SQLite, and then Postgres, its upsert is much is you know much more complicated where you have to do on conflict, and then if you're going to do up, you can either specify a uh, specific unique constraint and then say do update, blah, 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 or do nothing. Or you can also say do nothing if you don't specify, if you don't specify any unique constraint. But it has no equivalent of replace, and so we just have these two completely separate ASTs and just rely on you know which backend you're planning on executing this against. Yeah. I don't know that, that it's really a goal of Active Record anymore to decouple you from your database backend. I think it probably used to be because the only things that we supported were things that were supported by all database backends, but your database backend does some really cool stuff. You should take advantage of it. Yeah, I've long felt that just in everyday use of Rails or whatever. Like there was a time maybe six, seven years ago, five years ago maybe, where it was like common to like run your local database against SQLite and then right. deploy to something else. And you could do that because everything that was available to you via vanilla Rails was very, well, vanilla like you could just of course do... you'd still get bugs in production <laughs> right particularly around like timestamps and things like that yeah the places where things just work subtly differently right and so people ran into enough of those that were like okay and you know what postgres actually isn't very hard to install locally anyway <laughs> so i'm gonna do that those poor people who are on oracle on the other hand sorry uh <laughs> yeah Sure. Well, I guess that's gotten a little easier nowadays. And nowadays, things like Docker and stuff like that exist to make even some of those stuff that was previously hard easy. I mean, you still need to have an additional license to install Oracle locally. Oh, really? There is no like free community edition or whatever? Or, no. Like, developer edition? No, that's why Oracle is not in Rails itself is because we wouldn't, none of the contributors would be able to run the test suite. <laughs> okay, yeah. Now that SQL Server is available on all three and, and there's a way for you to get it for free for development, we're thinking about maybe merging SQL Server and Tree, but... That'd be interesting. Um, anyway, I've long thought that, like, just take advantage of the things that your platform does. Like, go ahead and use the... Like, I've been using the array includes operator quite a bit and, yeah. a, and array aggregation and things like that that Postgres offers me. And I think that people should 
embrace that. And that's all the more reason for me to want to see like a first class way to extend the types of things that I can do with active record, like yeah. things like database views and triggers and stuff like that. Or just use the array contains operator without falling back to SQL string literals. Right. And that that just goes back to like the idea of like the building up a SQL query with a hash, right? And that way, the yeah. the only operator you get is equality, <laughs> or not equal if you prefix it with the not. And even that took years to come about. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, I've said this for a while now that I think relation is just fundamentally flawed because a relation represents a full SQL query that is a poor unit of composition. Yeah, and it's very, it's very, very rare for you to have scopes that do anything other than call where. If you do have scopes that do anything other than call where, it's very rare that you're calling more than one of them at a time. Like you call one scope that adds order, and then another scope that adds limit. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe maybe pagination. Yeah, I was gonna say you you could definitely do that. It'd be like posts alphabetically paged. Those or something. don't need, to, but those don't need to be scopes necessarily. Like what we call scopes, those could just as easily be. I don't know. I guess method chaining is nice, but and my point <laughs> being for, for where specifically, since I think the most common case for scopes is they're calling where and the most common case for chaining them is adding multiple things for where I wish we had an API where you returned an argument that you passed to where and that was how we operated on things. And if you wanted to combine those, you have dot and or you do just call, you know, but but where it was dot where, you know, instead of like published, so dot mm-hmm. published, it was dot where published. Yeah. Uh, and that would give me much more room to start to introduce new APIs that represent more interesting uh, aspects of what you can do with a uh, with the query builder. Yeah, we'll get that in our new query builder coming in Rails six, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I mean, definitely you'll get that in the new query builder in Rails. When I can eight. decouple <laughs> relation from the rest of Active Record is uh, another question entirely. Yeah. So I, I can't. I'm not. I'm not getting rid of relation. I can't deprecate relation. <laughs> I can move it to a gem and continue maintaining that gem, but I don't want to maintain that gem. So it needs to be public API. Mm. It needs to be built purely on public API. Right. That's the plan. I don't. I have no clue how long it's going to take, though. Yeah. But so going back to like the, I don't know that Active Record really makes it a goal to decouple you from your database backend anymore. You know, if you accept that Active Record doesn't care about being backend agnostic, then there is no reason that you need to have two similar-ish queries against two different backends uh, be represented with the same AST. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes it becomes fine to have things like upsert, you know, just be represented differently in the AST depending on which backend you're using. And at that point, the visitor pattern just starts to fall apart because there's actually an up with upsert in general. The visitor pattern, like Postgres, the, the way you would represent Postgres upsert, there is no visitor that could visit that other than the Postgres visitor. Mm-hmm. It would be a very, very Postgres specific thing. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, make it happen. <laughs> We've reached the point of the show where I say, make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Make it work, Sean. Yeah, see, this is the problem. I have all these thoughts and I can hmm and ha about it and say, hopefully, somewhat interesting things about it. But at the end of the day, I still have to go. I can't, I can't just complain and have somebody else fix it. Well, that's why Diesel's nice. Diesel gets to be like the thing that's like your yes, thing Diesel's from start to finish. To and explore these things. Eventually, that will get too complicated to change, and you'll have to write a new one in some other language. <laughs> it's not even that it's too complicated to change. It's that backwards compatibility. Right. Because Diesel, I mean, when I do make significant changes to how we do our AST, like when I change to this AST pass walk AST structure, that was a pain in the ass to do but didn't have to worry about backwards compatibility. Mm -hmm. That's going to change in a month, though. So, Okay. Should we talk about um, your experience as a Lyft driver? Sure. (laughs) 
So for those who are not aware, uh, I got a Tesla about a month ago, I guess maybe two months ago almost now, and I wanted to drive it more. So I signed up to drive with Lyft, and so I do that for like an hour or two most days after work to sort of unwind. Mm -hmm. How are you enjoying the car? Car's great. Uh, have you met any interesting characters? Are you What uh, type of Lyft driver are you? Are you like a let's chat Lyft driver, or are you just like get in? No, I'm a let's chat Lyft driver. Oh, no, I don't no, want to be I'm, in your I'm car. Just, I'm, just, I'm just doing this for fun. I don't want to just sit there quietly and drive across town. God, I don't want to be in your car. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, if somebody clearly is not interested in chatting, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. But okay. usually people are happy to talk. Right. And they must want to talk about your car a little bit. It's interesting, yes. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think I've had anybody get in the car who's ever been in a Tesla before. And so there are always like, oh, my God, this is so cool. <laughs> There's no hump in the back seat, right? So there's no like no floor hump for the right. for the uh, what do they call that thing? Drivetrain, drive axle, something? I don't know. Right, the Fancy floor word. is flat the whole way back. Yeah, yeah. I uh, It's been uh, interesting. People are generally very friendly. Cool. Uh, I learned that Lyft sometimes does guaranteed hourly rates, which I didn't know. Oh. Like during busy weekends and stuff, it's not it's not terrible either. They get they guarantee like twenty five an hour. Okay. Well, and you get to drive your car. Yeah. Which at some point you'll be like, okay, I've driven it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> at which point I will stop doing the lifting when it stops being fun. But I don't know. I work from home and it's a nice way to get out of the house for an hour after work and just kind of not be thinking about programming or at a computer or available for people to ping on Slack. That's good. It doesn't show up in your uh, center console giant screen. No, I don't have you, Slack you don't installed run Slack. On the, uh, <laughs> in the car. Can you? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think you. I don't think so. I, well, there is a web browser, so I could probably like yeah. have it open, but uh, I don't. I don't think there's any way for me to install. Enable desktop uh, notifications, app. and then you're good. <laughs> have you ever clicked yes? I want to enable desktop notifications in a web browser. When it's the web UI for a chat app. Hmm. I've never. I've never once said yes to that, and I just wish there was a way to say like, just stop asking me. I'm never going to say yes. I don't get why blogs have like <laughs> yeah. when i visit a random blog and it's like this random blog wants to enable desktop notifications hell no what the hell does a blog need to notify me about i assume it's because like don't they require service workers so maybe somebody wanted to like play with service workers and they were like oh look what we can do now we could do push notifications maybe they don't some reason to be like they don't require service workers at all anyway uh it's a blog they shouldn't require service workers hey you can read the blog offline <laughs> Uh, um, all right. Anyway, I think we should wrap up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 131. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.